sky so bright, just like raindrops in the window pane. When your eyes are blue, something's wrong with you. Let me kiss the love light back again. Brown eyes, why are you blue? Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, thanks for joining me. Uh, I will be looking in this episode at uh, the well, the second part, the second 100 pages of Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis. Um, his one of his most well-known and and and, and best novels. Um, it is the not the whole life history, but at least like the first half life history of, of a brilliant young doctor named Martin Aerosmith. And in the first episode, we looked at uh, the first part of the novel, which explored his largely his education and his background and, and his relationship with, with Gottlieb, his, his most beloved professor. He had different teachers throughout his life, but Gottlieb is his highest teacher in a way. And he was a bacteriologist, an immunologist, and so Martin's lifelong interest in infectious diseases and public health and the treatment of of and the in the the search for a cure for these diseases is imparted in him um but it's much more scientific for Gottlieb if it's more like the, let's solve this problem let's uh let's use science to solve the you know these big questions and do peer research and and all that and you know the big narrative throughout the book is where these you know in the medical profession, to what degree should you be involved in the peer research and what degree is that valuable and what degree are doctors people who interact with patients and make them better? And all of this comes to a head in the climax of the novel, which is set in, in, in the Caribbean island, uh, which is having an epidemic of the plague. And then there, Martin Aerosmith is going to have to sort of do both, be both the peer scientist, the researcher, the one who develops a cure, and also someone who has to deal with real people, you know, people actually quite close to him who are dying and he gets that personal uh, tension. Now, as a student, it's easy to kind of have these debates intellectually, right? You, you, you know, I don't know your background, but maybe you had these similar conversations with classmates when you were in college or in high school. It's like, what do you want to be when you grow up kind of conversations? And someone says, oh, I want to be a scientist or I want to be a a car salesperson or I want to be a, a business person right these are you know it's a, people have different dreams and it's not like a moral crisis it's not a moral choice but as we get older in life these become moral choices it's like to what degree do we have to concern our family's fortune to what degree do we have to actually um, interact with the world we can't always just stick in the lab right so like the the pull of the lab is so strong throughout Aerosmith it's a huge part of this novel um, and, and Martin, it's never quite resolved, right? It's a tension that goes back and forth throughout the book, even as Martin's career gets more established and developed, but it's always this pull between, you know, am I a doctor or am I a scientist? And I think it's, it's a really powerful novel looking at these, these themes, even though they're not ever fully resolved. Um, but anyways, uh, so the first eight chapters really deal with Martin's youth. And we've discovered that Martin himself has a lot of, um, interpersonal issues he's got addiction issues alcohol issues and things like that and that's sort of where we left off in the last episode so if we start up with chapter nine um you know he's actually in pretty hot water um is like one of the students is actually 
he leaves medical school because he really doesn't find a happy future in that. And, and he doesn't see the hope for him having a happy future for what he wants in medical school. And he actually goes off to become a used car salesperson, right? And this, this is like foreshadowing for later on where we meet physicians who essentially are used car salesmen. I guess I won't get that till get to that till the next episode when we get into like the politics of medicine. That's a bigger part in in later in the middle part of the novel and and to a lesser degree towards the end. Um, but you know this he just goes on becomes a used car salesman, right? And you know to what degree is medicine just selling this idea of good health, right? I, I talked about this a little bit in the last episode where I introduced some of these themes. So I won't repeat it ad nauseum. Um, but you know, it's something that's on Lewis's mind constantly as he as he wrote this book. Now, Martin himself is also being punished for some of his hijinks uh, that he engaged in earlier in the novel, and he basically got into a little bit of a fight with Goldlieb, his teacher, and he's basically told, "You got to apologize to Goldlieb and, and shape up and stop drinking and, and be a good boy." And Martin says, "No, I'm not going to do that. F you guys." You know, I don't need you. And so he actually drops, he's actually suspended um, from school or sort of expelled uh, until he goes through a certain contrition. And so he eventually decides to follow his his fiancée, uh, Leora, uh, to Wheatsylvania. I don't know if it's a real town. Uh, of course, Zenith is a made-up town, as is the state of Winnemac. These are Mar- Lewis's creations. But he goes to this town, which sounds so... <laughs> Like bland Midwestern small town, Wheatsylvania. It must be creation. Um, at least I, I'm in my mind. It's a, it's a total invention of Lewis. But if someone from Wheatsylvania is out there, can tell me how wrong I am, and tell me you know it's actually a great metropolis. Let me know. Um, so he he eventually goes to Wheatsylvania to be with uh, Leora, and he's with her for a while, and you know, but. You know, he has tensions with his future in-laws. And so he decides to return to Zenith after a while. So he can't stay away forever from medical school. In fact, there's really no future for Martin except medical school. It's, it's certainly inevitable that he'll have to return to Zenith. Um, so chapter, that's chapter nine. So chapter 10 deals with his return um, largely to, to Zenith. And, you know, he basically apologized. He talks to the dean, and the dean's like, "Okay, we'll take you back. Whatever. We're glad to have you back. Actually, you're a great student. Um, you know, sorry we're so hard on you, but you got to apologize, and you know, it's business or whatever." So he finally kind of gets back in with the, the university, um, and and um, at the same time, Leora, who you know, of course, enjoyed the time with Martin back when she was in when he was in Wheatsylvania, Wheatsylvania, decides to go return to Zenith to finish uh, medical school. So uh, while he finished medical school, she said she's going to do a job and she's kind of giving up her nursing profession to do that. And this is just another kind of tension is like the role of the wife, I think. I, I don't know. It, it's it, I notice it quite a lot. And of course, by the end of the novel, we'll see that Leora ends up making the ultimate price, paying the ultimate price for her commitment to her husband's career. Uh, they're not married yet. I think they get married in this this chapter, chapter 10. But uh, she, she has to sacrifice something to be with him as uh, he's not required to in the same way. So 
I don't know if it's a straight up feminist argument, but it's pretty clear that she's the one who's going to have to sacrifice her career um, to to fulfill the needs of of Martin Aerosmith. Um, and I think there's a like, and this kind of forces another way this kind of tension works its way out. I think is there's a real conflict here between like what Gutley Gottlieb wants. What's his teacher wants? And his teacher wants to replicate him. All teachers, to some degree, want their students to replicate them, or at least, if you're particularly a bad teacher, I guess, it's stronger than others. But even in good teachers, there's this desire to kind of care, you know, pass on your genes, your intellectual genes, to the next generation. You can't always do that with your kids, so you do it with your students. Um, but he's now got a family to worry about, right? He eventually marries Leora, and now he's got to make money, and he's got to, con- you know, he can't just be in the lab if it doesn't if it doesn't mean he's going to have a profession. He can't just be Gutley, Gottlieb's lab assistant for his whole life. He's going to have to make uh, have a career. That's certainly what Leora's family wants. Um, but he eventually decides after he finishes school, he will return to Wheatsylvania. And Leora's father has sort of already promised that he will help Martin Aerosmith start up a medical practice. Um, and he's essentially saying he's going to accept a modest future for now for some maybe greater future. And in a sense, that's what happens in the novel, but it happens only after a lot of sacrifice, I guess. But here's how he sort of thinks it through. He says he's very idealistic still at this stage in the story. Quote, if he had ached a little for research and Gottlieb's divine curiosity, well, he would be such a country doctor as Robert Koch. He would not degenerate into the bridge plane duck hunting drone. He would have a small laboratory of his own. So he came to the end of the year and graduated, looking rather flustered in his cap and gown. Agnes stood by and Martin seventh in his class. He said goodbye with lamentation and considerable beer. He found a room for Leora near to the hospital, and he emerged as Martin L. Aerosmith, MD, MD, house physician in the Zenith General Hospital. So he can't start his profession yet. He can't start his practice yet in eventually Wheatsylvania. He has to go through his internship, his residency, as, as I guess it's called now. But he has high hopes that he can kind of be a, a doctor-scholar kind of mix. And, and, you know, in practice, that's not possible. He's going to be a small-town doctor, at least in the short term. And that means he's going to have to get involved in local politics. And he's going to have to be chummy and make friends and, and be good and, you know, understand the local culture and schmooze with people and go to dinner parties and all these all this nonsense none of which is going to leave much time for active active research um and and i think that's just the reality of having a job right it's you know you could have your dreams as a student but as you enter into the quote-unquote real world you have to make these kind of sacrifices and concessions so that brings us to chapter 11 which is mostly about aerosmith working as an internship at zenith general hospital um, now here he's, he's basically forced to, or he tries to focus on the human side of medicine. I think to his credit, he's not indifferent to that totally. He does have the preference for the lab and the lab sort of always draws him and, and Gottlieb is, as we'll learn later on, quite disappointed that he sort of lost his star student and the person who was kind of molding into being a, a research uh, doctor, but, um, but he, he does have to interact with the human side of medicine and actually interact with people. Um, nevertheless, he still has this very strong uh, desire for greatness, it seems to me. 
So he's talking to Leora. Actually, they, they run into Goldleap, and, and we don't know this yet, but Goldleap's kind of in a bad place when he meets him. Um, we'll get Goldleap's story later on. But um, he says, so this is what uh, Lewis writes. He concentrated on Leora, but his talk was of Martin. Your husband may be an artist, healer, but not a picker of trifles like these laboratory men. But Goldleaf's no picker of trifles, insisted Martin. No, but with him, it's a difference of one's gods. Goldleaf's gods are the cynics, the destroyers, the crepe hangers, the vulgar call, call them, Diderot and Voltaire and Elser, great men, wonder workers, yet men that had more fun destroying other people's theories and creating their own. But my gods now, they're the men who took the discoveries of Goldleaf's gods and turned them to the use of human beings, made them come alive. All credit to the men who invented paint and canvas, but there's more credit, A, to the Raphaels, the Holblins, who used those discoveries. Leonek and Osler, these are the men. It's all very fine, this business of peer research, seeking the truth unhampered by commercialism or fame chasing, getting to the bottom, ignoring consequences and practical uses. But do you realize, if you carry that idea far enough, a man could justify himself for doing nothing but count the cobblestones on Warehouse Avenue. Unquote. So he kind of finds this middle ground between these two. This is the ideal, the ideal that someone can use knowledge, use medical knowledge for the goodness of, of humanity. And that's not what Goldlieb is really seen as doing. He's, he is really interested in solving the problem, the puzzle of, of medicine, not the human side of it. Um, and that's, but it's still not the mundane daily family practice kind of stuff that most medical students end up kind of engaging in. So after this, we get a couple of really interesting chapters, chapters 12 and 13. I'll look at them just together here because they're all about Goldleap. Um, so we spent all this time, the first quarter of, a novel, of the novel or more, with Martin Arrowsmith. And we, we, of course, Goldlieb is in the story, but we don't really get his full story until chapters 12 and 13. And we get a lot about his background, his migration to the United States, his um, prolific and brilliant career. Maybe not like the most well-known doctor, but really brilliant. He writes the kind of articles that only 12 people sort of understand in the whole world, that, that kind of high-level research. Um, but... We also find out that he's incredibly broken, actually, by by the loss of of, of Martin. Um, he, there's a whole section here in chapter 12 where we learn just how much he adored Martin and how much he thought on him and how much he thought on his creativity and his original research and all of this and how much he, he really was anxious over the loss of Martin and how much he wishes he'd come back. He actually feels he's he's lost something great. Yeah, in the loss of this student. Uh, a great point of view section here on Martin. Something you didn't see. And, you know, I think, you know, it's it's not easy for a teacher to to talk about a student like this, I think, openly. And it's not, it's not something we always think about, how much teachers who do lose students every year uh, to graduation, to them going on with their lives, how much, you know, how much that can be heard and, and how much there is grief in that. I think it's uh, a sensitivity maybe we don't always have. And we always think of teachers as incredibly joyous when students you know, graduate and move on with their lives. And of course, that's part of it. But there's also loss involved in that. And, and we don't feel that because Goldlieb is not the kind of guy who's going to express himself that way anyways. Um, now, with the loss of Martin, he, he kind of gets more and more nutty in a way. Uh, he decides he wants to really focus more and more on peer research. 
And this leads him into conflict with the dean, Dean Sylvia. And we almost got a parallel here with Martin's earlier expulsion, where eventually uh, Goatleib gets uh, fired for fighting too much with the dean because he wants to create like a peer research academy in the university, but he knows the dean's going to have to get all the way for that to happen. And he actually, at one point, just sort of says like, maybe you can just get out of the way and retire and so I can kind of run things here. And eventually he just gets fired for his being a problem troublemaker. And he didn't have any savings. He finds out his wife is getting sick. His wife is getting ill. She's not going to survive much longer anyways. But, you know, he's ultimately is destitute when Martin saw him on the street. And this, this is an event that happened in the previous chapter. But by this point, uh, Gottlieb is, is basically destitute. He only had a few hundred dollars. Um, and, you know, this is, again, something that's brought up again and again in this book is the, the conflict between passion and the need for just a material existence. And yes, most of his classmates, Martin's classmates, just say, okay, I'm gonna do the easy thing. I'm going to uh, get a practice or I'm gonna be a medical missionary or I'm gonna be a car salesman. It's all about ultimately just accepting material uh, comfort over some greater goal. But Gottlieb does have his higher goal and for him it's science it's not really humanity for martin martin's able to reach that point where he thinks humanity is something he really wants to fight for and that makes him capable of being a general practitioner of small town it means he's capable of to at least a degree to to trying to address a, a plague in the caribbean eventually you know now he's going to have a lot of moral conflicts when he does that and these the tension over his research side and his experimental side is going to butt heads with the reality of dealing with real people uh, in the Caribbean. But that's that's later in his career. Um, so in a way, Martin comes off a little bit in a stronger position here than Gottlieb. He can't go to be a general practitioner, but but Martin's able to. Um, now, in chapter 13, the story's kind of continued. Uh, Gottlieb, who's basically, you know, near homeless, families in big trouble. He gets a call from this Hootsiker company. So he gets a, he basically gets hired by a company and so they say, you can do peer research, but anything you develop, any cure you find, any vaccine you find, any antitoxin you discover. Um, and by the way, I, I got to talk to my biology colleague. I'll try to do it tomorrow. He, he actually wasn't at work today. So I didn't get a chance to talk to him, but there's some, I, I want to learn more about what antitoxins are and what phages are and, and how that actually, because that's going to be important later on. But that's the kind of thing that Gottlieb and, and Aerosmith end up kind of dealing with their research is with antitoxins. But this Hutzer company, Hutziker, says, okay, you could just do peer research. We'll give you a stipend as long as you work for us. It's not contract based, but anything you find is going to be us, ours, right? He's not going to have any ownership in his findings. So this is really a chance for Lewis, for Sinclair Lewis to, to kind of uh, attack the reality of corporate science. Right. Here's what the here's the deal. We shall be glad to offer you five thousand dollars a year for starter. And we shan't worry about the halftime arrangement. We'll give you all the space and conditions and material you need. And you just go ahead and ignore us and work out whatever seems important to you. Our only request is that if you should find any serums that are of real value to the world, 
we shall have the privilege of manufacturing them, and if we lose money on them, it doesn't matter. We'd like to make money if we can do honestly, but our chief purpose is to serve mankind. That's obviously not entirely true. Their, their ultimate concern is to the shareholders of the company. Um, but it seems a good deal um, for Goldleaf, who's desperate. Um, and eventually he does discover a new process for creating antitoxins, which I guess neutralize... Uh, some vaccine some it's like an antivirus type of thing um so he finds this new method for producing antitoxins and here's the key thing it's a method it's not an antitoxin itself he comes up with a new method for creating it while he's doing this and the, the corporation finds out and says oh ha ha we have to patent this like you develop something you promised to patent it but if you look back to what i just read the deal was if you find a serum or an antitoxin something that's usable We'll, we'll patent it. But he didn't say anything about patenting ideas or methods. And this is where Goldleaf says, no, you can't do this. And he kind of hesitates. He, he says, well, it's not quite done. I need to perfect it. You can't write. It's not ready to patent. He kind of delays it, but he knows the writing on the wall that anything he does, any anything he creates here is going to be someone someone else's. And his ego can't handle it. And he also has a moral opposition to this idea of patenting methods um which you think you know this can help millions of people i mean if, if if it's just a method i should be able to spread it and publish it and everyone should be able to know about it um now as things are getting bad for him at the hootsiker hootsiker company he ends up re being recruited by um the mcgrath institute and they give him a better deal they just say this is just pure research it's just purely funded research and you're welcome to come so this happens after his wife dies. She was already getting sick. And his wife died, so he's it's in New York, and he says, you know, when can I start, basically? And so this side story about Gottlieb ends with him actually getting sort of what he wants. He doesn't have students, pure research. He's got a lab, the funding he needs, a salary, and and he's he's happy. His story's not done, but in a sense, the tension in his life is more or less resolved. Uh, so. Moving on to chapter 14, we, we kind of return to Martin's point of view, and now he's in Wheatsylvania, and chapter 14 is, is kind of a short, there's not much going on in this chapter. Basically, it's about him getting his practice started. Um, not too much interesting to say, but, you know, he's kind of in debt to Leora's father, who, who helped him set up this, this office space, which... There's like an apartment that opens up above a general store, and this is a great location for a general practice, kind of family doctor. And so he eventually rents that place. But it's, you know, we he's not good at that side of things, and he has to rely a lot on his father-in-law to, to kind of manage all that stuff and, and, and find it. Um, so it's, it's just part of Martin's character, I suppose. Then in Chapter 15... We really see him beginning to build his practice, and the challenge of being a small-town doctor uh, come to light here. It's very personal. That's the thing. Being a small-town doctor, it's very personal. It's mostly about connections. It's not about his brilliance. It's not about his education. It's not about his his cutting-edge research. It's not about his teacher. Like no one there knows Goldlieb. No one knows Dean Sylvia. It's it's about who you know. It's about your reputation. And, and that's going to be a big thing in his turmoil of being a small-town doctor is a lot of it has to do with, you know, was he out drinking last night? Or, like, you know, what's, 
what's that doctor's reputation? And, you know, he even runs into trouble with one of the local pharmacies uh, where um, one of the, like, he just offends one of the pharmacists. He has to use the other pharmacy, and that puts in a kind of, you know, makes his life more difficult. Just trying to make it as a small town doctor is an interesting part of the story, I think. And, you know, we get a parallel here, right? In thinking of this book, so much about the tensions between peer research and and the practice of medicine in a daily day, day-to-day life, day-to-day kind of existence, small town, family practitioner kind of medicine, family life, supporting the family. You know, Goatlieb is able to move into peer research only when his wife dies. When his wife dies, now, you know, that may have just been a plot device or a thematic device by Lewis. Obviously, this is all created by him. But Gutlieb's after his wife dies, he's able to go on and meet his dream of doing peer research without any encumbrance, without any concern about income or things like that. Um, uh, Aerosmith, he has to do what he has to do to, to make a living because he's got a family now, right? Um, but in both arcs, both Aerosmith's and Gutlieb's arc in these chapters, um, there's corruption and compromise in both areas, right? Both end up having to make concessions to, to achieve their, their goals, whether they, they may seem small to us or, or they might be very grand, as in Goldleaf's case. But I think these two characters are really in interesting places throughout these chapters. Um, now, in chapter 16, we, we start to see he's getting a little bit of a reputation in town, and it's not really well-deserved, but people gossip about the doctor the same way they do about the minister, I'm sure. Um, you know, he does get in the local community, though, and this, he learns he has to play this game. He has to go golfing. He has to go to dinner. He has to, you know, schmooze with the local people. He has to be friendly with people because these are his patients. Um, but he does end up getting a little bit popular because he saves a life. He's like out fishing. It's a, it's a sort of little section, but he's out fishing and someone like starts choking and he saves the life of this person and this makes him kind of famous in this small town environment people begin to trust him more and he's able to kind of move up and he he makes more friends he's able to become more part of society which is all really good if you want to be a lifelong career small town uh, doctor but that's obviously not martin aerosmith's goal he definitely wants to have a uh a life somewhat in research it's always been his dream like a small lab at the very least a lab in his basement kind of hope um now where things start to change for aerosmith is he meets this guy gustav uh uh sandelius he's going to be a major character for much of the rest of the novel at least in the backdrop um and he is a public health guy and he, he he hears about him in talks at first. Aerosmith hears about him in talks he gives. And he's he's the guy kind of... This is very much of the progressive era. It's striking how much uh, I'm re, I was reminded of of the progressive era and how that you had all these people thinking, how can we use government to solve problems, right? And one of those problems was public health, whether it was like the spread of venereal diseases or uh, cholera or or clean water and sewers and all that. And this is something science, they believed at the time, and I think it's true, but, you know, it really, scientists had a big role to play in policy and in government. And this was, the progressive era had all sorts of 
problems. We've talked about it quite a lot in this podcast earlier. Pretty much whenever we deal with these turn-of-the-century novels, the progressive era is in the backdrop of it. And obviously it was tied to prohibition and scientific racism and, and classism and, and all anti-immigrant policies and all these other things. But, you know, in many ways it was also saying, you know, how can we, how can government, how can policy, how can science just make people's lives better? Um, and Sandelius is, is really one of these guys who wants to promote scientific public health. And he thinks government should do more to invest in public health, right? Remember, this is also the era of urbanization. Cities getting larger and, and public health becoming a more conspicuous problem. In fact, way back to my graduate school days, when I first started going into studying history, I did a lot of research into public health of this era. I, I, one of my first major papers I ever wrote that I presented at a conference was on uh, the New York um, a neighborhood, a community in New York City that did an anti-venereal disease campaign uh, in, in the early 30s. And, you know, I think that paper is still pretty good. It, it, you know, it was a very close analysis of what this local neighborhood did to try to um, promote awareness about venereal disease and try to lower VD rates um, in just one neighborhood of, of New York City. So this was a thing at the time. That's my point. Yeah, is this kind of public health? And this is something they kind of wakened something in Martin is that this is how he can be a doctor that addresses the needs of people, but also can take his knowledge of bacteriology and immunology and, and all that to bear. It's really where these things can cross together. And that's, again, the climax of the book is is a plague where Aerosmith is going to be crucial in in helping the local people there. Not Maybe it doesn't save everyone, but he's able to help mitigate that plague. Uh, you know, and... Maybe that's where medicines are the most powerful. Maybe that's what Lewis is trying to say. I, I don't know. Lewis obviously isn't a doctor. You know, he's. This is actually this whole book is actually based on the life of a, of a real life doctor that he sort of modeled it off of, but that he interviewed. And and it was kind of close in the development of the novel. He was part of the development of the novel. But all that aside, I mean, I think Lewis sees the sweet spot between pure science and. And, and individual medicine in in the public sphere, right? In helping the public, and public health is a great way to do that. Um, so, anyways, uh, chapter seventeen, um, he actually gets to kind of jump back into research, which is really nice. If you're if you've been following Aerosmith for almost half the novel now, and you're like, oh, poor Aerosmith, he has to like cure broken bones and you know, deliver babies and boring things like that. Um, he, oh, I, I missed, speaking of babies, I missed something. Laura has a miscarriage um, in chapter 16. It's, um, she's pregnant and he's pretty excited about that, but she ends up having a miscarriage. Um, in chapter 17, he gets to go into pure research because there's a plague among cows. There's like a cow an epidemic among the cows and he's able to actually, there's a failed vaccine, and he's able to work on a vaccine that's better. So he actually is able to stop a epidemic among cows in this Wheatsylvania. And it, it's a, I think it parallels very well what happens later on in the novel, where he's going to, you know, move on to humans, but, but do the same sort of thing. Um, in this chapter, he also meets uh, uh, this Sondalus, 
this public health guy. And basically, Martin decides he needs to leave the small town. Like, the death of his... Uh, well, it was a miscarriage, but the, this this miscarriage, I think, and the meeting of this person who inspired him, he's kind of like the new new hero. He kind of replaces Goldleaf. He becomes the new hero for, for Martin. He doesn't have the baby, so like he's not as connected anymore to to a life as a small town doctor and so he decides he's got to move into the field of public health so this uh opens us up into what i'm going to talk about in the next episode which is going to be the middle part of the novel where we're going to see martin aerosmith move on into the realm of public health but that's also going to move him inexorably into the field of politics which is something he's not used to so it kind of we've seen politics before a little bit with maybe with goatlieb's life um in his background, but Martin Aerosmith himself, I always want to say Martin Eden. Maybe I did <laughs> at one point in this episode. It's, it's, you know, Martin Eden by Jack London. It's, it's a very different novel, but it's in the sense that it's an epic history of one man and he's named Martin. So, so if I made the mistake, I'm sorry about that, but um, it's always on the tip of my tongue, but Aerosmith, Martin Aerosmith, uh, he is not used to politics. He is someone who is going to have. That's a new area for him, and it's going to and it's going to be a new dimension of of medicine. It was foreshadowed, something he probably should be aware of, but he's not fully conscious of yet. So that's what I'm going to talk about in the next episode, uh, as I look at the middle part, the the, the third part of five uh, episodes that I'm going to use to to cover this book. So um, overall, uh, great novel, really must read. I think. Uh, but yeah, if you've already read Aerosmith or if you're reading along with me, let me know what you think. Uh, send me your comments at hundredpagescast at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, that'll be it. So I will see you next time. I hope you won't be afraid to enter into a little bit of a political discussion in the next episode. So, uh, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. That's when they begin Disappearing like the April snow Brown eyes, why are you blue? Brown eyes, what can I do? Don't keep those sunshine